All right. First Kings three starts a parallel in second Chronicles one. And I compared these two in my study this week and realized that first Kings three has got more of what we want to cover. I'll just mention a few times where second Chronicles one has a few comments that first uh, Kings doesn't have, but we'll just stay in first Kings three instead of flipping back and forth. Um, I was looking at a book that is very helpful, the theological messages of the Old Testament books. And so what that book does is look at common phrases and themes throughout the books of the Old Testament and see what we can learn about God and his ways from those books. And first and second Kings were one book. And if they were put together, they would be the longest book of the Bible. And they originally were one book, first and second Kings. And likely because of the length of the scroll would be just too big to handle and pass around. And they would, they split up uh, Kings into two. They also split up Chronicles and Samuel. Um, so we don't have, we don't think of first and second Kings being one book. It's, it's two, but the, they counted the number of words. And by number of words, uh, Kings is the longest book of our Bible. And uh, the uh, the person that I that analyzed uh, this book, um, First and Second Kings, noticed that what you see throughout this book of forty seven chapters, fifty three uh, promises of either blessing or judgment. And when we think of uh, blessing or judgment, what with God's word, what is our natural response? If God's going to judge you, we would probably respond with, well, what do you think? Judgment's coming. You're going to be judged. What do you think your response would be? Yeah. Fear. All right. And the fear of the Lord, beginning of wisdom. So fear of judgment is an appropriate response with how big God is. He's the creator. He sees all things, all the truths that we know about God. But when it comes to blessing, promises of blessing, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply. I'm going to be with you. The blessings of God. How would we respond to blessings? Joy. What else do you think? Thankful. Good loving and praise expectation and and trust so we trust god um we don't want to if you think of a verse in the new testament that has both blessing and judgment in it john 3 16 god so loved the world he gave his only begotten son whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life but if you don't believe in him you're going to perish you're going to judge, you're going to be judged. So you should fear God and trust in the Messiah. So based on God's word um, of blessing to David, David responds to the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, very important uh, passage that talks about the Messiah, but it also talks about the son of David that's going to carry on and be the, the promised one. 
And uh, Solomon is going to mention that in this prayer today. All right, so Solomon's kingdom is firmly established with 1 Kings 1 and 2. The enemies of Solomon that could rival, challenge his throne, his rule, destabilize the kingdom, all those challenges are eliminated. And now we have Solomon really begins. He's firmly established. We saw that last time. And now he's going to start ruling. What does he do? What does scripture tell us he does first? Okay. He eliminates the enemies. He's firmly established on the throne. What does he do? Well, 1 Kings 3 and 2 Chronicles 1 tell us what he does. Um, first, 1 Kings 3 is going to tell us about a marriage alliance. Um, it's hard for us to imagine marriage alliances, but it was very common in especially Old Testament time that if you wanted, if you wanted to have a friendly um, kingdom with another, a friendly uh, alliance with another kingdom, you would give your daughter or son to be married to another king's daughter or son. And so Solomon in his youth, uh, maybe still a teenager here. Uh, forms a marriage alliance it doesn't sound like it's love uh it sounds just like a political alliance but this is very common uh later we'll see solomon's wives turning his heart away from god but i don't think pharaoh's daughter is one of those wives that he marries for love and maybe enjoys her like we think of a marriage today it's more of just a political transaction and we got to put ourselves back in that time frame this is common this is uh, ordinary. That may be why uh, Abraham's wife, who he said was his sister, Sarah, why Abimelech wanted her to be related to Abraham so that, that Abraham, as he grew stronger in, in might, wouldn't attack Abimelech, who was the head of the Philistines. Uh, and so that may have been a political marriage where we think all oh, Sarah was older, and yet why would Abimelech want her as a wife? <laughs> it was likely a political marriage uh, for peace within the... And then you can see how Abimelech, whenever he can't have her as a wife, he still wants an alliance of um, of peace. All right, so we're, we're going to skip over what Solomon's marriage with uh, Pharaoh, uh, his, his daughter. Um, and um, this happens before... Solomon builds his own house uh, before uh, the house of the Lord had been built uh, for the name of the Lord. And we're going to pick up, um, first of all, uh, I'm just going to read Second uh, Chronicles 1.1. 1, 1. Solomon, the son of David, established himself. This is how Chronicle, Second Chronicles begins. Mm -hmm. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom. And that's all it says where First Kings 1 and 2 gives a lot of detail of how he established himself in the kingdom. And the, the next phrase is interesting. And the Lord, his God, was with him and made him exceedingly great. So the foundation of a godly life is God being with us. Throughout the Bible, the godly people in God's word want God to be with them. And when Jesus comes, his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, so a wonderful promise and a wonderful title that Jesus has as Messiah. He is with us, and when he is leaving the earth, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you without comfort. I'm going to send my spirit, and the spirit is sometimes called the spirit of Christ, so that Christ can say, 
I am never going to leave you or forsake you. You have my spirit within you. And we have a wonderful privilege of having, um, can walk with God because the Lord, our God is with us. And God gets credit for making Solomon great. God also, David would have given God credit for making him great uh, too. All right. So the foundation of a godly life is the Lord, your God is with you and the Lord makes you prosper. Now, Solomon, his spiritual analysis of his life, how God views Solomon is 1 Kings 3, 3. Solomon loved the Lord. How do we know Solomon loved the Lord? Well, the Bible tells us, right? But there's evidence of his love. Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Okay. And the rest of this up to verse 15 of 1 Kings 3 is going to show us what a godly life looks like. He is loving God. He's serving God. He's obeying God. You see there in verse 3, walking in the statutes of David, his father, he is an obedient son. He's obedient to God. So if David is looking at all of his sons and says something's different about Solomon, the summary of what David sees in Solomon is, here is a son who loves the Lord. And this is why I want to make him king. Adonijah, much older, other sons, uh, Absalom, Amnon, we can see of those guys' uh, lives before, they didn't love the Lord. They were a rapist, a murderer, trying to take over the kingdom, deceitful. That is not, that's not Solomon. He is a younger man, but he loves the Lord. So the foundation of a godly life and how to begin uh, a godly kingdom is that the person in charge is loving, serving, and obeying God. So what does he do besides just loving and obeying God? Verse 4 says, The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that is where uh, the, great, the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Okay. Um, it's a little strange in this time in Israel's history that the Ark of the Covenant is separate from the tabernacle, but seven miles from Jerusalem is this place of Gibeon, and that's where the rest of the tabernacle is. The bronze altar where he's offering the burnt offerings on, all of the table of showbread, the curtains, everything, the holy place, all that is in Gibeon, while David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, seven miles away, okay? this And it says that there were high places. Now, you'll see throughout Kings that a high place was where the Israelites and the and the people in uh, the Canaanites, where they would put high places where we put cell towers, okay? <laughs> cell towers for us are in a high place in a populated area so that people around can get cell reception. So you think of where you've seen a cell tower, that's that's likely where there would be a high place. High place would have an altar, and they would think, if you're a Canaanite worshiping Baal, uh, we're going to worship Baal, and Baal's going to oversee from this high position all of the people in his vision. Okay, so if you can imagine how you would think that God, ha your God, has to have eyes on the people around so we're going to look around, or oh, we have a water tower real close here to our church. That's where definitely you'd have a high place. 
there'd be an altar there. That's where you'd offer sacrifices. Um, and so the Israelites would take over, if they took over the promised land, they would take over instead of worshiping Baal on their high places all around, on their high hills, they would put an altar to the Lord. And you can see that with Elijah, um, that there was an altar to God on the mountain and it was in disrepair because Baal worship was prevalent in the time of Ahab. Uh, so Elijah had to rebuild that altar. But so it says here that they still worshiped in all these different high places. Well, they didn't have a temple yet. So there's a need for a central location where God doesn't want his people worshiping as they see fit in every little place. And uh, you read the book of Judges, uh, um, who is it? Gideon's dad has an altar to Baal. And so there's all these different Baals in different places. And that's not how God wants his people to worship. He wants them to worship at the tabernacle. And eventually Solomon's going to build the temple, which is going to be a permanent place. Those high places then are not necessary. They should have been torn down. We'll see that Israel still struggles with them throughout their history of hundreds of years. All right. So Solomon is going to Gibeon. That's where he's going to offer sacrifices and a thousand burnt offerings. I'm going to assume each of those burnt offerings is a bull that cost in today's money a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars that's a million dollars worth of sacrifices that solomon gives that's a very sizable gift okay if you go back to leviticus one you'll see the purpose of burnt offerings those were daily sacrifices and then on special occasions more burnt offerings but they were completely consumed and they were a reminder to israel that we are a sinful people and we have a god who is holy and the only God can, it's called atonement or covering of your sin. Only God can cover our sin. How can we have God live with us is that he has to cover our sin. And a burnt offering was a reminder just daily, not specific sins, but just in general, that we are a sinful people and we love God for allowing us to be near us, with us. And so a burnt offering was a sacrifice of dependence, of atonement and a thankfulness that a holy God would be near us. He's our God. All right, so Solomon, the bigger the sacrifice, like a thousand, is more of a display of Solomon definitely loves the Lord. He is completely committed to serving the Lord. And then if you look at, um, we're not going to go back to Second Chronicles, but Second Chronicles tells us, um, chapter one, that he has all the leaders, the commanders of thousands and hundreds, the judges, the leaders of Israel, the heads of the father's houses, he gets them to go with him. So he's not by himself here. It sounds like in first Kings that, that Solomon's by himself. But if you compare this with second Chronicles, uh, he has uh, tens of thousands of people, all the leaders of Israel with him as he offers these sacrifices on this, on this particular day. All right, and then uh, verse 5. He is at Gibeon. He offers a sacrifice. Um, he provokes others to worship with him. And then verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. Second Chronicles says, that night God appeared. So I, I assume that Solomon gets all these people to come worship with him. He offers a thousand burnt offerings, which would have taken a long time on one altar. How, how long would it have taken to kill and burn up uh, one or two maybe bulls at a time? <laughs> it's like an all-day event and a wonderful worship 
dedication, devotion to God. And then that night, Second Chronicles 1 says, God appears to him. The Lord appears to Solomon. How does he appear to Solomon in verse 5? In a dream. Now, usually dreams today isn't how God talks to us. I'll say definitely he doesn't talk to us in dreams. As we wake up from dreams, you're like, what was that about? <laughs> I have no idea why I was thinking about that. You have dreams about people that you went to high school with, and you're like, that was so many years ago. Or you got to some really bizarre things happen in dreams, and you don't want to tell anybody because they'll think you're an idiot. And like, you can't control your dreams either. But this isn't how God communicates to us. But in the Old Testament, and Hebrews 1 tells us, God communicated truth in many different ways. And one of those ways clearly is a dream. And so this is raising the uh, um, the level of surety that this is really God. Uh, and this is recorded for us in scripture. And God makes some promises here to Solomon in a dream at night. All right. And we're going to see at the end of it, verse 15, Solomon awoke. So Solomon has a conversation with God while he's asleep. I don't know how that worked. <laughs> okay. Other than I can see in scripture that he's asleep and he has a dream. And we know he was asleep because verse 15 says he awoke. But he has this wonderful prayer in his dream. So he is talking to God. There's a two-way conversation. So half of this uh, passage is going to be Solomon talking to God. The other half is God responding to Solomon. Uh, so let's look at what is God. God starts uh, with the dream and says, ask what I shall give you. A blank check. Now, a blank check's only as good as the person who has the check. <laughs> um, but when the almighty, sovereign, eternal creator says to you, ask whatever you want. You're like, I wish I could get that from God. <laughs> like, I wish God would come to me and say, okay, anything you want, you can have. But we're not Solomon. We're not in the situation he's in, um, in the in the line of Christ, following a faithful God and leading all of the all of God's people. So we're not in the same situation as Solomon, but we can learn from him. And he is likely still a teenager here. And Solomon verse six says. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David. Now, I'm going to pause here, but four times he uses the word servant, and I'm going to let you guess that that word is not translated correctly. It's supposed to be slave, all right? So this is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament word doulos, which we did that study on slave, um, and I was reading, I, I verified this, um, reading um, MacArthur has a new legacy standard Bible, and he uses the word slave. And to read it slave four times in a row is like, like Solomon puts himself as the supreme king. He puts himself as a slave of God. David's a slave of God. I'm a slave of God. He says it four times. So in, in three verses here, he, said, he uses the word slave four times in reference to his father was a slave of God. And then three times he is a slave of God. I'm just your slave. I'm just your slave. And it really heightens the humility that that Solomon is, is talking to God. So verse six, you've shown great and steadfast love to your slave, David, my father. 
And how did David, Solomon's father, live? He walked before you. So we were told back in verse 3 that Solomon walked in the statutes of David, his father. Well, now we get a little more detail what that looked like. Here it says that my father David was your slave, and he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. A man after God's own heart lives this way. Faithfulness to God, doing what God says consistently, and he's upright in heart toward God. This is how slaves of God live. And he says in verse 6, you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And we're going to read into this, a son that also loves God and is trying to live a faithful, righteous, upright in heart life as well. All right, so he's praising, he's praising God. Uh, he starts with... Um, praising God for his steadfast, his great and steadfast love. You see that in verse 6. And then he praises God at the end of verse 6 for and, and 7 and 8 for something else. You have given him, you've given David, a son to sit on his throne this day. Okay, so God is the one who gave David a godly son. Verse 7, and now, O Lord, my God, this is all Solomon praising God. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your slave king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go in or to go out or come in. I don't know how to rule these people. But I am your slave. You see that there in verse 7, verse 8. And your slave is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. All right, so he's praising God for his faithful choosing. You see the choosing of his people, your chosen people. You see that in verse 8, the people that you have chosen, a great people. There, there are so many people, I can't count them, I can't number them. Um, and I'm in charge of ruling them. I don't know what to do. And uh, you've also chosen me. So praising God for his faithful choosing. Now, how, does it, how do we respond like this to God? Well, it's very clear this is the doctrine of election, that we didn't choose to be in God's family. God chose us. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. John 6 says, God brings us to Christ. And um, we are clearly chosen by God in the New Testament. So we are, God chooses his people, Israel. He chooses their leaders. And he, in the New Testament, he chooses those who are Christ's followers. So praising God for his great steadfast love and then praising God for his faithful choosing. This is all Solomon praying to God while he's asleep. Verse 9. Give your slave, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? In this prayer, we see, if you use the word slave, it is a, a better translation than servant. If you put slave in there, Solomon, the greatest king that ever lived, sees himself as a slave of the Almighty. It's remarkable. No other 
ungodly king, the greater they are, they would never say they're a slave of the Almighty. But the most godly people, Old Testament, and you'll see it in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, when you see the word servant, Peter starts his book this way. I think James starts his book this way. Uh, the apostles writing the New Testament, they start, I am a servant of, it's actually slave of, of Jesus Christ. Um, Jude, I think, starts his book this way. So seeing ourselves as slaves put us in a position where we are dependent on our master. And Solomon, in all of his glory, is starting really well because he is starting humbly, depending on, on God. So all of that is praise for God. Verses 6, 7, 8, and, um, and then we get to verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. So of this prayer, if you look at verses 6 to 9, three verses are praise, and one verse is the request. Um, this is how godly people pray, praising God and uh, provoking other people to praise God, as the many leaders are hearing Um not not hearing this because they're this is in the middle of the night, but it's written now. So they could read it and we can read it. And we are learning how to pray from uh, a godly person's prayer. And then getting back to God's request. So ask what I shall give you. Using the same word give you in verse five, Solomon says, okay, give your slave an understanding mind to govern your people. This word can also be translated judge or um, or rule. But likely the idea is judging because what you're going to see in verse 16 is an example of Solomon's wisdom in discerning judgment. Second Chronicles, I think, says to discern both good and evil or what is what is good, what is evil, what is right. And Solomon saw it with David and he's asking God for um, wisdom to to govern his people this great people, they're God's people. All right. Let's see how God responds in verse 10. The giver of life responds this way. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. This is evidence that this young man loves the Lord and is starting his rule by walking in the statutes of David, his father, in an upright, righteous, faithful way. All right. So it pleased the Lord. And verse 11, and God said to him, all right, now this is all conversation while Solomon's asleep in the stream. God says to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So who gets credit for Solomon's wisdom? God. And no one has ever been or ever will be as wise as Solomon because God gave him this wisdom that he asked for. And it says here, no one was ever like him before either. So there are wise people that have lived on this planet, but nobody before or after, why is it Solomon? Because God is the one who gave him um, 
the, his wisdom for the purpose of governing this great numerous people, God's people. Verse 12, um, verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked. And here's God's gracious mercy, kindness, compassion. This is steadfast love. This is what Solomon praised God for. And now he's going to enjoy uh, extra benefits that he didn't ask for. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And it's likely that no other king actually has ever had this much wealth again on the face of the earth. Um, we don't know that for sure, but it doesn't say that like it does the wisdom. But it definitely, while Solomon is ruling on the earth, no other king is even close to as as wealthy and honorable as Solomon. So those are unconditional promises. But part of the answer to this, um, part of God's response is a conditional promise. Now, we know the condition with the word if. Look at verse 14. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So the unconditional promise was the wisdom and the riches and the honor. And then the conditional promise was based on your obedience to me, Solomon, then I'll lengthen your days. This matches what we see. Uh, children, obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. And it will go well with you. You will live long on the earth. See that in the commandments of honoring your parents. Also Ephesians 6, I think it's verse 2. So Solomon is promised length of days if he will walk in his father's footsteps. So David is seen in throughout First and Second Kings as the hero. His name is mentioned over and over again. We'll see a couple villains in First and Second Kings. But the hero clearly is, and the comparison is, how do kings live and how do they walk as David walked? Did they walk as David walked or not as David walked? Question? He actually didn't. He ruled for 40 years, but he's only 18 when he becomes king. So you can do the math. 58. Anybody with all those wives who caught the back. <laughs> <laughs> we will see, we will see, uh, we will go back to Deuteronomy and compare what Solomon does compared to what he knew. And soon after this, his heart is turning away from loving the Lord and walking in his ways. He's starting to walk in the foolishness of, although he's got all this wisdom, he's not living wisely in accordance to God's revealed word. And we can compare that and, and learn from his mistakes. All right. Finally, in verse 15, uh, how does this, um, how does Solomon respond to this dream, this praying and this response of God? Solomon awakes and behold, it was a dream. It's like one of those dreams that you have today that are really good. You don't want to end. And if you can go back to sleep and like, I just pick up where that dream left off and see how it ends. <laughs> this is though divine revelation in a dream and the dream clearly ends. God allows Solomon to wake up. How does Solomon respond? He realizes it's a dream. He comes to Jerusalem. He stands before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. What, God, what David wanted close to him in ruling, the last part of David's 
reign and why he wanted it in Jerusalem. He wanted God's presence there. Solomon goes and just stands in God's presence. And then it sounds like back in Jerusalem is where he offers more burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. And if you compare that with Second Chronicles, that's thousands and thousands of people. So he has a feast for all of his leaders and um, likely tells them the contents of, of the dream. So, and then how does he end in Second Chronicles? Uh, verse 13 says, Solomon came from the high place of Gibeon and before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem and he reigned over Israel. So he goes back to worship and back to ruling the kingdom. So how do we respond to this? Well, don't expect a dream like this, okay? <laughs> if you come to church and say, I had a dream, I want to say, no, you didn't, okay? Or it doesn't mean what you think it means, okay? We're, we're not going to put a lot of stock in your dreams and God communicating to you some special revelation in a dream. So don't expect, don't go to bed expecting dreams like this. We're not in Solomon's uh, shoes. We may have a hard time relating to Solomon because if you look at us compared to Solomon, we have severely limited resources. <laughs> okay. Look at our bank account compared to his billions. You're like, okay, I don't even, I can't relate to that. Uh, we also don't have a kingdom to rule. We don't have followers, like thousands and thousands of people are just looking to us. And we're also not the political leader and a religious leader at the same time. Uh, so we don't have the followers. We have such a small little kingdom that we're in charge of. We don't have any servants or slaves as Solomon does, just doing whatever we want. However, God does provoke us to worship. And he, wor he provokes us to worship in a very similar way because he's the same God. He is still the God who is great, has, has great and steadfast love, and a God who is faithful to keep his word. He expects us to live lives in faithfulness, righteousness, and uprightness in heart. If God looks at us and we have a lot of detail of David's life and Solomon's life when he was doing what was right, we can compare ourselves with them and say, am I living a life that God would be pleased? And he would say, God would evaluate my life and say, here is a Christian in the 21st century who reminds me of David and his faithfulness righteousness and uprightness of heart so he looks at our hearts as he did david's heart and he comes up with this evaluation and god expects us to have the same life of faithfulness righteousness and uprightness of heart toward him and then how do we live well how are we using our time how are we using our money it's not as the same as Solomon, but we do have resources are we using our time, money, and resources to worship and to provoke others to worship him? Just because you say, oh, well, I'm not a king. Well, we are to provoke others in Hebrews 10 to love and good works. That's worship. And use the resources, the time, the relationships, the followers that you have to provoke them to live holy, righteous, godly in this present age.